The Spectator's prestigious Economic Innovator of the Year Award in partnership with Investec are now in their sixth year. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear about the success of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. Applications are now open and will close June 16th. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator. Hello and welcome to Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall, at the Spectator offices in London. Last week, The Telegraph published a very important story. They revealed that the counter-disinformation unit had been set up by the Conservative government during lockdown to counter disinformation, supposedly, or suppress free speech, as others are saying, online, uh, particularly around lockdown. And this report was described by Elon Musk as terrible, but it isn't necessarily the first we've we've heard of uh, suppression of free speech over the last three years. Um, here to discuss it um, is author of the investigation and Whitehall correspondent for The Telegraph, Tony Diver. Tony, thank you for joining me. Good morning. Well, congratulations on uh, what I consider a very important um, piece. Can you can you tell me what you discovered? What what's the significance of um, this story? Well, what we revealed in that story is that there were two units operating at the heart of government during the pandemic, which were scouring the internet, Twitter, Facebook, and everywhere else, newspapers, looking for views that they considered to be disinformation about COVID. They were, and it was set up based on legitimate concerns about uh, conspiracy theories spreading about vaccines and and the like. You know, we've all seen those on the internet. We've seen some of that damaging uh, content, but they set up basically to look for this disinformation. But what happened was these units cast their nets very wide. And what they did was scooped up a lot of dissenting views on the internet, people saying quite legitimate things about uh, the government's response to the pandemic, about the closure of schools, for instance, requiring children to wear masks in schools, lots of the stuff that we now consider to be fair game in terms of talking about the impacts of lockdown uh, and what happened during the pandemic and the policy decisions that were made. Those people had their content flagged inside the cabinet office and inside DCMS uh, in Whitehall. And then though that bit, pieces of content were then passed back to Twitter and Facebook and the government told them, we think this breaks your terms of service and you should take it down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these two units have been operating. One of them has been operating since 2018, well before the pandemic. But the government doesn't really like talking about them because it sounds quite sinister, basically. It sounds like the sort of thing, you know, that you hear of authoritarian regimes, you know, the government monitoring what people are up to online. So the government tries not to speak too much about it. What we did was uncover these units, what they were doing, the content they were flagging, uh, and the people who were making those arguments behind the scenes. And, and we revealed to the public that actually what you were doing online during the pandemic was, was according to the government, very much their concern. So the, you got this information from the civil servant who, who then was appointed leader of this uh, unit, Sarah Connolly. Is that, is that correct? How did you get the information for, from this? Well, we, know, we knew that the units had been operating. The names of the units, there's two of them, the Rapid Response Unit in the Cabinet Office, which has been operating since 2018 and was originally set up to, to tackle misinformation surrounding the Syrian war, and the, COVID dis- uh, the counter-disinformation unit in, in DCMS. We knew about them. We sort of officially they did exist. They had been mentioned in Parliament. But what we uncovered was, was people who had sent subject access requests to the government under freedom of information laws to say, 
what information do you hold about me and you know has your unit been monitoring what i've been saying online mm-hmm. and discovered that that had been happening and so you know we, we interviewed several campaigners and normal people who were just making arguments on the internet about covid um who had then discovered subsequently from from their requests that the government had been monitoring what they'd been saying and, mm-hmm. and in some cases passing that information on back to Twitter and Facebook in an attempt to get it taken down. So what we did really was put some meat on the bones in terms of those units, went beyond the official government line, which is to say very little about what those teams were up to, uh, and exposed what the government actually considered to be disinformation during the pandemic, which we and you know others who've commented on the story since, including Elon Musk, think they were probably casting that a little bit too wide. Yeah, there's a, there's a wider context here um, because... It was only at the end of last year that the Twitter files were published with journalists Michael Schellenberger, Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss, amongst others, upon Musk's takeover of of, um, uh, Twitter. But what we saw there uh, was how the FBI and American uh, governmental agencies were corresponding with Twitter and they they were telling them flagging things that they should be taking down. And it seems like a similar thing was happening here in Britain. Actually, Isabel Oakeshott revealed earlier this year that as early as February 2020, Hancock had been talking to, uh, I think, Nick Clegg, it was at Facebook, about how to take things off uh, social media. So what does it look like, the operations from this British unit and the American tech companies? What, What was that relationship? What do we know about how they were operating? Well, we don't know fully. We don't understand exactly how those conversations happen because a lot of them happen behind closed doors. But perhaps I can just sketch out the sort of structure of the whole thing for mm-hmm. you. Um, there was the counter disinformation unit was a team of civil servants based in DCMS, Culture, Media and Sport Department, um, which has now been separated off. And the unit still exists, sits in the Science and Technology Department now in Whitehall. And the remit that it was given was to look for disinformation on the internet which could contribute towards narratives about vaccines and about lockdown and about the covid pandemic that were false that would um you know give the wrong idea to the public about what was really happening and and the feeling in government was that that could potentially be damaging in terms of people following lockdown rules or um not taking the vaccine all these sorts of public health measures that the government wanted people to follow so that was the remit of the unit. It was a team of civil servants. The two main ways that we know that they sort of scooped up this information was through scouring social media. And we know that they actually contracted a third-party company to do that. Mm-hmm. They contracted a, uh, an AI firm based in Yorkshire. Do we know the name? Yes, it's called Logically. Uh-huh. Um, and we've spoken to Logically. They've explained to us what they were doing. They were given a government contract. They were paid about a million and a half pounds over the course of the pandemic. And wow. They used an, an AI algorithm, basically, to search Twitter and Facebook to look for content which flagged the you know, suggestion of disinformation narratives. Uh-huh. Um, and that content was then passed back to DCMS. And DCMS then had what is called a trusted flagger status with both Twitter and Facebook, which means that if you or I saw something on Twitter that we thought maybe breached the terms of service, maybe maybe it was abusive or wrong or whatever, you can report it. Mm -hmm. All the social media firms have a a function to do that. But the government has a special relationship with these organisations, which means that essentially their stuff that they flag goes to the top of the queue and it gets looked at straight away Mm -hmm. by the administrators of those social media sites. So there was a sort of a little ecosystem going on there where AI bots that were run by private third-party companies passed into the government. The government then reviewed those, put them into a spreadsheet, and we've seen those spreadsheets, 
and then flags things that they thought were in breach of terms of service mm-hmm. to Twitter and Facebook. And we know that during the pandemic, at the height of the pandemic, they were in contact with those social media companies on an hourly basis. Mm-hmm. So they were speaking they were speaking to them all the time uh, about stuff that they thought should be taken down. And so, actually, when you look at those lists of things, yeah. um, I think you'd be surprised to see that some of the stuff that the government thought may be in breach of the terms of service or thought should be flagged because it's people expressing opinions about what policy direction the government should take as opposed to spreading lies about the pandemic. Was there anything particularly that struck your eye uh, as uh, alarming that it was that it was uh, signaled? Well, I think the one that sticks in my mind most was a campaign of Molly Kingsley, who's the she's a, she set up a campaign group called Us for Them. It's a children's campaign group set up during the pandemic, which basically campaigned for schools to be opened earlier or not shut down at all, for for kids not to have to wear masks in classrooms, for social distancing rules to be relaxed in classrooms. Um, and, and their view, and it is an opinion, was that you know those restrictive measures in schools were going too far and it was damaging the education of kids. And she tweeted in December 2020 that it would be a mistake if the government was to shut down schools again, as they ended up doing one month later in January. Um, because by this point, schools had already been closed and then reopened, and there yeah. was a suggestion that it could happen for a second time. She was saying, don't do that. It'll be damaging to, to children's education. It should be avoided. And that was one of the things that was in the report that we've seen that was flagged by the Council Disinformation Unit as, as potential disinformation. Yeah. Um, now, the thing that really sticks with me about that one is... Earlier on this year, I worked on the lockdown files team for The Telegraph, which revealed some of the decision-making that was going on in government through the use of Matt Hancock's WhatsApp messages. Mm. And we published dozens of stories about those messages. But some of those stories were about Gavin Williamson, the education secretary at the time, and his reluctance to close schools in December 2020 at exactly the same time that this was being tweeted. And and Gavin Williamson now says that he wishes that he'd pushed that view harder. It was his view at the time that schools shouldn't have closed. Mm. But he says he wished he'd pushed that harder. He wished he threatened to resign over the fact that the government wanted to close schools again that January. Mm. And so the interesting thing about those two things is what Gavin Williamson was saying, a cabinet minister sitting in cabinet meetings and having conversations with senior scientists and senior officials, the view that he was expressing was the same as the view of a campaigner on Twitter that was then being flagged as as misinformation and as far as we understand it, potentially even flagged then to Twitter in, in a request for it to be taken down. So that gives you a sense of the sort of the, the caliber well, of stuff like that keeping being... schools that na- uh, keeping schools open now is is not deemed disinformation as as generally that was I think that's probably the popular opinion now is that we shouldn't have closed at school but we'll get into the the lockdown files because you're one of the journalists on on that story and um, uh, interested to hear uh, your more about that but the the before we do the the government response to your investigation has been that that they didn't ask tech to censor anything that wasn't already breaking the rules of the tech companies themselves. To, to which my immediate response would be, well, then why were you doing the work for the tech companies? It wasn't, it, isn't it their job to do that themselves? Why would a government spend taxpayer money, as you already said, one and a half million, uh, uh, there's been reports more still, uh, why, why is it the responsibility of government to do that censoring for tech if it's within their terms already? Well, I think the government had a pretty difficult time during the pandemic trying to manage the issue of social media. I mean, this is the first big scale public health event for you know, 100 years, perhaps, mm. um, certainly of this scale. And the government has never faced this problem before. The government in, in previous 
crises has faced the issue of the press, right? And the press has, newspapers have editors that you can go and speak to. They have journalists that you can um, interact with through your press office. Their social media is something of a wild west for, for the government. And I think what it shows is a concern, basically, that they, they weren't able to... Um, they weren't able to influence what people were saying on the internet. And, mm -hmm. and so their response to that was to say, well, if the tech companies aren't going to do it off their own back, what we're going to do is try and show them what they should be doing. Ultimately, the decisions were always still up to Twitter and Facebook. The government doesn't have the power to shut down content on the internet you know, mm -hmm. without the consent of those tech companies. Um, but I think it shows an anxiety from the government that there was something going on here, people talking that they couldn't really influence or control. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so that they felt the need to, to set up these teams to do it. There's there's a link here, and you've mentioned the DCMS because this is where the unit was coming out of. But DCMS is also where the online safety bill is coming out of. Here, what what's what's the latest on the online safety bill, and what what are there similar? Con I mean, do do you share similar concerns about that bill as as with let's say the counter disinformation unit? Well, yeah, I mean, there've been plenty of concerns about that online safety bill because there was a you know, concern that the list of things that were, should be taken down by these tech companies and which actually the tech companies should face massive penalties for not removing mm. um, was too long and that it, you know, it could have potential impacts on free speech and that, you know, the government had arguments in the Lords about this as well. Um, I think it is the same instinct, isn't it? It's the same concern that there's something going on on the internet that the government would like to regulate and actually a lot of the stuff that we're talking about in terms of online safety is really horrible stuff stuff that no person really wants to see going on the internet, certainly don't want children to have access to on the internet. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I think it's exactly the same instinct. And we have to think about this from the perspective of the tech companies as well, because actually for Twitter and Facebook, all of this stuff is a huge headache. Mm -hmm. the, the online safety bill and all of this disinformation stuff is a huge headache for the tech companies because basically what the tech companies wanted is as little regulation as possible. They don't want to have to hire massive regulatory teams and lawyers to deal with stuff. They certainly don't want the legal consequences of not following these new laws and potentially being fined 10% of their global profits uh, if they break them. Mm -hmm. So there, there is a bit of a wrestle going on here between you know the government's concerns about content on the internet uh, and, and these free speech, and these uh, tech companies that would rather not be considered publishers mm -hmm. um, and would rather say, oh, it's nothing to do with us. This, you know, people can say what they want on the internet. And there mm -hmm. is, there is, you know, both a regulatory and a free speech battle going on there. The free speech battle one is, is one I've explored a little bit on this podcast series. And, and there's a sort of line here, you know, to what extent do we, do we want free speech? My position would be that even if, if it was technically not correct information, that was going out, we needed all minds on the issue. Let's say it's lockdowns or COVID. We want maximum voices on it so that we can get to the truth. As soon as you start censoring people, bad ideas can run can run right. Do you think, do you sense there's a, uh, where, where would you draw line, the line on, on, on the free speech issue? Well, there's a difference here between misinformation and disinformation. Um, misinformation is, you know, someone getting something wrong, putting something out there that's not true by accident, not deliberately. Uh, and disinformation is you deliberately spreading false narratives about COVID or, or whatever the issue is. And, and we've seen in the past state actors doing that. We know that Russia has got these troll farms that spend all day, every day coming up with false narratives to try and spread dissent in the West and to try and destabilise governments. So, I mean, I think... I think a lot of people would say it makes a lot of sense to try and deal with that stuff, um, to, to, try, I, to try and de deal with state actors. Isn't that just lies and propaganda? Like, why are we using the word disinformation? It seems to me that that's just a new word to put down people we don't like and we don't agree with, because what's, what, isn't that just lying? 
Well, well yes, yeah. I suppose, I, I suppose yeah. it is. Yeah, I mean, there's no... I mean, I don't think anyone would have any qualms about describing what Russia is doing mm. and, you know, his lies and propaganda. But um, when it's used... what Outside of Russia, when it's used on, let's say, own British people or uh, other people in, in the West, people who are dissenting voices on topics like, like lockdown, we use the word disinformation. It seems to me that's a way of being pejorative about uh, the people saying the speech. So Russia propaganda aside... There, there is, there is something there that's a bit more striking. I guess I'm, I'm pushing here because, as someone working at the Telegraph in in journalism, I'm a little bit con- concerned by the the state of journalism. So, for example, I'd have thought that a story like this, where the, a conservative government was suppressing speech, and a paper like the Guardian would be all over this because it's it's, you know, it would be totally with playing to to their interests if they're to, to well not playing to their interests rather it's their responsibility to hold the conservative government to account so i i'm i'm kind of curious by the state of journalism and why words like disinformation uh, come up and why some stories are not making it and not making certain papers your story for example has not had the traction in left wing uh, media the twitter files which was a huge story about free speech barely got touched by the BBC, all the while the BBC is launching BBC Verify, where they're going to tackle disinformation. But aren't journalists supposed to check whether things are true or false? What, what, what's your take on the state of journalism? How do you feel? Well, that's it? a big question. What's my take on the state of journalism? I think this is a big thing that journalists are, are grappling with at the moment uh, and defining what exactly is dis- disinformation and what is not, mm-hmm. uh, as, as you point out, is, is difficult. And, you know, this story that we've written about these units operating in government is exactly about that question. It's about where do you draw the line? And as far as we can see, the government drew the line pretty liberally mm-hmm. around a lot of people who were making very sensible arguments. You're right, the BBC has launched this new BBC Verify service, and I think that is aimed at trying to bolster trust in the BBC by saying, you know, have a look behind the curtain, let's show you the, the processes that we go through in order to verify information. Mm-hmm. But that is that is what journalists do, right? That is the point of the job. The point of the job is you you look at a piece of information, you try and work out whether or not it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's true, you write about it. If it's not true, you don't. You know, uh, does the public necessarily need to be taken behind the behind the curtain and shown how that works? Well, I suppose we'll have to see whether or not BBC Verify does bolster trust in the BBC. But yeah, I think I think all media companies are grappling with this issue at the moment, mm-hmm. particularly when you look at something like the Ukraine war, where there is a concerted effort by state actors to spread lies about what's going on there Mm. Um, you have to combine that with traditional journalistic methods you know people out there with their notepads and their Mm. cameras looking at what's happening and and making up their own minds so yeah I mean I think it is is one of the biggest questions that journalists are facing today is Mm. how do you actually distinguish between truth and falsehood Mm. particularly on the internet where the rising power of AI and its ability to falsify Mm. things on the internet very convincingly you know is a a bigger challenge than ever Mm. Uh, earlier in this conversation you mentioned that the rapid response unit which is part of your report was set up uh, after uh, during the syrian war am, am i was that linked to terrorism specifically or something else because and the reason i ask is sarah Connolly, i think was part of a counterterrorism unit before and, and it strikes me that there's a lineage uh, um, with uh, in this country uh, let's say prevent trying to take down uh, terrorist voices using social media to to organize and then there's likewise in america i think you can make a parallel that you you have the patriot act after 9 11 
leading to uh, stellar wind as, as exposed by Edward Snowden, where initially policy that is designed to protect the, the, the people of a, a nation then goes, seems to slowly adapt to, you could say, suppress or censor. Um, do, you, do you think uh, there's a link there? Uh, what's, what's the, is there relevance that Sarah Connolly was involved in counterterrorism before, do you think? Well, I mean, the original, the original thing was set up to you know, counter false narratives that were being put around, by, again, by state actors during the, during the Syrian civil war. And I think few people would have an issue with what that unit was doing there. But yeah, the difficulty with all of these things is that the government doesn't really like talking about them because it provokes exactly these kinds of debates about what exactly is being censored. The government hates, particularly a conservative government, hates the idea that they, they should be censoring anyone online or anywhere else. And so the difficulty with, with both these units and with Prevent and, and, with, and in the States as well is that these units generally operate secretively. They're kept quiet for national security reasons. And when we asked... Uh, why that not more information had not been made available about these units. When we were writing this story, the government told us, well, for national security reasons, we try, mm. and, try and keep this stuff quiet. Well, the question is, why, why are they doing that? Why shouldn't the mm. public know by what metric will you decide whether or not what I say on Twitter is, is worthy of being taken down or, be, or being flagged to, to social media companies? Um, and you know, there are people with their own concerns about the Prevent Programme and the Prevent Programme has faced accusations of mission creep and of changing its initial purpose. Of course, the Prevent Programme was set up to prevent you know, Islamic terror um, and to, as a sort of early warning system, I suppose, to flag the potential radicalisation of people who could go on to commit terrorist acts in the future. Now, its critics argue that it looks at more far-right terror and also just general right-wing voices more than it does anything else. There was a story uh, in the Mail on Sunday earlier this year about Jacob Rees-Mogg, the, the former cabinet minister, being put on a prevent list you know, for a speech that he made in the public domain. And yeah. you know, there are people who question whether or not that unit is really doing what it's there to do. Um, but I think the answer to all of these things is just transparency. Mm-hmm. You know, the more we know about what these units are and what they're doing, who runs them mm-hmm. and how they make the decisions that they make, the more confidence the government can expect people to have in the work that they're doing. Did your investigation find there was any link to intelligence services? Uh, we didn't find any concrete link to intelligence services, no. Um, we know there was a piece of work done by Big Brother Watch, the think tank, early this year that looked at some similar themes and looked at these units as well. And it found that there was, the, there was some army involvement in some of these units during the pandemic. We know that army units were deployed all sorts of, all over the place for various different reasons during the pandemic. Uh, but the army does have a dedicated uh, brigade, the 77th Brigade, which looks at misinformation, disinformation, and actually, you know, works to spread positive or supportive narratives about what, what the British government is doing behind enemy do. lines during during conflicts. So we think that that unit or something like it was involved as well. Um, but How I mean, does that, that brigade work then? Well, they I'm have not, a misinformation, disinformation brigade? They have a, when called, it goes behind enemy lines yeah, to, I'm not, I'm not to an, find out whether enemy... I'm not an expert okay. on this one. I'm not an expert on this one. But there is a, there is a military brigade, the 77th Brigade, which is, you know, it's, it's not men with guns, it's men with laptops who are looking at... Um, you know the information war, but the information yeah. war is, of course, part of the part of how we do conflict yeah. now. Um, yeah, and there's always been military intelligence, and there's always been people doing that stuff. But you know, now of course it happens on the internet rather than uh, rather than you know, dropping pamphlets out of aeroplanes or whatever we did yeah, yeah. In, in 1939. <laughs> um, you mentioned uh, Big Brother Watch there, and uh, Silky Carlo has said that millions of pounds of taxpayer money has been spent on these uh, disinformation counter disinformation units, and you've already said that. Uh, they, the government's paid one and a half million or nearly one, about one and a half million to 
AI, the AI uh, lo logically, was it called? Is it true that they, how much more do you, than the one and a half million have they spent of, of taxpayer money? Have you got how much of a concept of how much they spent on this? Well, program? we don't have a total figure, of course. What we can see, because they're in the public domain, is contracts that the government has taken out with third party companies, money that is paid to them to do it. And this logically, these logically contracts are part of that. Mm -hmm. In fact, the government has been tendering recently for a new contract to do something quite similar because we know this unit, this unit is still operating. It now sits in DSIT, the Science and Technology Department. And so more money is being spent on, on contractors on this all the time. Mm -hmm. Of course, the government contracts lots of things out to third party companies and probably doesn't have a dedicated AI unit that's able to scout social media in that way. Um, the thing that we're not able to put a number on is how much money was spent inside the department. Of course, if you have a we don't know how many people are involved in this team. Mm, yeah. We don't know exactly how long it was running for. We don't know what sort of resources it had. We don't know what budgets it had. So um, m my instinct would be that the lion's share of the money that's been spent on these initiatives has been spent on public sector workers, on civil servants, mm, rather than on, yeah, on, on contracts. But, you know, we're certainly talking well into the millions of pounds. Yeah. Uh, so can, you, can we go back to the lockdown files? So you, you mentioned it earlier, and you were one of the journalists on that when uh, Isabel Oakeshott, uh, shared the 10,000 WhatsApp messages of, of Matt Hancock to the Telegraph. What's what's the um, what do you think stood out from 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 those messages most concerning to you, uh, Tony? Well, I mean, there were dozens of stories that we published as part of that investigation. What it showed was a lot of the advice that was going on behind the scenes. I mean, the, the first story we published, the splash on day one of that investigation, was that the government was warned. Uh, about the virus spreading in care homes. Mm -hmm. And that became one of the biggest stories of the pandemic was about people being discharged from hospitals who were COVID positive when we didn't have very much testing capacity and it was difficult to work out who was positive and who wasn't. Being discharged into care homes where they were in contact with other elderly people who were much more susceptible to dying from the virus. Mm -hmm. And we revealed that the government was warned much earlier than it has ever been revealed before that that would happen. And they didn't act? And, well, the, the government was in crisis because the hospitals were all full with elderly people who had COVID. Mm. And it was very difficult to find out whether or not they did have it because the testing capacity was so low. Mm. And so the government had to make a choice. Do you discharge people out of hospitals to free up hospital beds for other people who need to be put on ventilators? Mm -hmm. Or do you leave them there? And, and what are the consequences of that? And it had always been the assumption that the government never really understood the extent to which the virus was spreading care homes if they weren't to discharge if they were to discharge um mm. we revealed that you know matt hancock was warned that, mm. that that would happen and ultimately it did and that was contributed significantly to the death toll during the pandemic mm. i imagine that the the, the lockdown files are going to be in, or that those whatsapp messages will be an important part of the covid inquiry that starts uh, this week what what can you tell me about the covid inquiry and what do you what do you think we can expect to to come from it well, so far, the majority of the stuff that's been written about the COVID inquiry has been the row over what material they're going to have access to. Mm. And I think the important thing to point out is that at the current rate, we're not going to be looking at getting any sort of result out of the inquiry until 2026, well after the next election, mm. um, which is convenient for the Conservatives, of course, who are still in government and will be seeking re-election in a year's time. And we'll be hoping that a lot of you know, material potentially about the mishandling of the pandemic or the decisions they made mm. uh, won't come out before then. Mm -hmm. uh, but the rationale behind the lockdown files investigation was to put out in the public domain messages that reveal what sort of decision making was being taken and why and there were those in government in fact it was the official government line was to say we're not going to comment on this stuff we're going to wait for the inquiry in fact politicians always say that when something goes wrong they say we're not going to comment on this we're going to wait mm. for the outcome of the inquiry i think what our investigation did was sped up that process 
brought out some of those major issues into the public domain and put them into the hands of those who are conducting the inquiry and said, this is the stuff you need to be looking at. Mm -hmm. uh, and it also set a precedent. I mean, the, the row that we've been having over the last few weeks is over the use of Boris Johnson's messages mm. by the COVID inquiry. Uh, Boris Johnson has said he's more than happy for his messages to be handed over. The Cabinet Office doesn't want them to be handed over because they worry that it would set a precedent that other government ministers should also hand over their phones. And, and there is mm. concern about what what those reading the, from the inquiry reading them would, would be able to find by doing that. So I think what we did was set the tone and we established a precedent for those messages being published and revealed to the public actually how useful they could be mm -hmm. uh, in looking at the decisions that people made. Um, I think one of the most important things about that investigation was to show just how much ministers were using WhatsApp mm. to make decisions. That's not something that we've ever really understood before. I mean, we all know, you know, those of us in Westminster know that WhatsApp is used on a minute-by-minute -minute basis to, to speak to each other. Everyone uses WhatsApp. That's mm. how politics is done now. But there is an official system for ministers making decisions. Mm. You know, there are civil servants whose job it is is to sit in meetings and take minutes. And there are policy papers which are distributed to ministers using their red boxes. And, you know, there, there is a a system of accountability and transparency mm. that we've established for this exactly this reason what that investigation showed is that behind the scenes decisions were being taken and conversations were being had between senior people um, that were not ever minuted that were never meant yeah. to be released and the public was never supposed to see and what we did was basically pull back the curtain and say here you are this is what mm. was going on it's going to be very revealing because one of the natural differences is when you're on whatsapp you just assume and you're in a private conversation and if it's actually that's now slowly become the formal way of 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 government correspond intergovernment intragovernment correspondence uh that we're going to have a completely different see a dialogue and there's going to be different manners to it to it all so it should be pretty interesting yeah i mean i've noticed myself since we published that investigation it may be a coincidence perhaps i'm taking credit for for more than i should but I've noticed that people have started turning on disappearing messages on WhatsApp, yeah. the thing where if you send a message, it deletes within seven days. And that means that those messages disappear from WhatsApp servers. They're not available to anyone anymore. Uh, and they're certainly not available to be published by journalists or visited by public inquiry in, in years to come. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a way, perhaps it's driven people underground even further and people are taking greater measures to, to ensure that their conversations remain it's, secret. This isn't just significant, by the way, to... Uh, politicians and people working in government it applies to all people if you want to take someone to court for libel or slander say or libel rather you have to give up your phone and all your private emails and private messages for lawyers to check even if you believe they were private they are in the public domain you see, you see this uh, another person i've interviewed is uh, jay Bhattacharya, who who is one of the signatories of the great barrington declaration and he's been he's exposed in the, the states some of the governmental uh, uh, behavior and similar to this kind of conversation on, on uh, lockdown and, and COVID. And uh, he's exposed by suing them. He's, he's shown their private messages, which is very revealing. So I know, again, that's governmental, but it really applies to anyone. Now, your messages are not safe legally. Anyway, <laughs> so um, uh, back to the COVID inquiry, sorry, and relevant to your uh, uh, investigation, as we've been discussing, both Jacob Rees-Mogg and I believe David Davis has said that part of the inquiry should be to investigate this counter-disinformation unit. Do you think an investigation is necessary? What, what, is there even a, a desire, uh, do you think, to take this down? Or is actually, do people generally support 
a counter disinformation unit? Well, I think most people don't know about the counter disinformation unit. Mm. Um, and, you know, that was one of the reasons why it was important that we wrote that story. I think you know, there is clearly political appetite to look into this stuff, and particularly on the conservative benches, actually. And you have that slightly strange situation where you've got a conservative government that you generally expect to be suspicious of these kind of initiatives, mm. um, being criticised by its own MPs on the back benches for, for doing exactly that. I don't know whether or not it will become part of the inquiry. The, pro- the inquiry is already facing a bit of a problem with mission creep and with scope. Uh, mm. And, you know, there is, I mean, already the, today there are calls by trade unions that the pandemic inquiry should be looking at the last... 13 years of the Conservative government and the impact of austerity on public institutions, mm-hmm. which ultimately led to, um, you know, difficulties in dealing with the pandemic. So everyone, in a way, is kind of tacking on their own personal projects onto yeah. the COVID inquiry and hoping that that will be investigated too. And the inquiry, if it's going to have any chance of reporting, you know, in the next 10 years, needs to try and narrow its scope mm-hmm. as much as possible. But I think, you know, this is something that people have major concerns about. And at the very least what those MPs will be hoping for is for the government to make a more, a fuller public declaration of what exactly they were up to during the pandemic Mm -hmm. to stop saying this is a matter of national security and therefore we can't talk about it and actually say, look, this is how many people we had there. This is what they were doing. This is where they worked. This is how much stuff they flagged. Here's how we decided what we flagged and what we didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, And to people who had their content unfairly flagged as disinformation perhaps to apologize and to say you know we made a mistake and if we were going to do the same thing again we would keep the net a bit more tightly focused on what we were actually trying to achieve which is tackle genuinely harmful narratives about covid is there anything else we can expect from your investigations on counter disinformation unit and is the are the investigations ongoing Is, is there more to be revealed Well, there are still things that we don't know about these units. um, And one of the interesting elements of it is exactly how they interacted with social media companies. And I said to you earlier that we don't fully understand exactly Mm. who was making those decisions and how stuff was being flagged. Um, We do know because we've seen an email that was passed to Big Brother Watch, that think tank um, from Twitter, that about six in 10 of the requests that were made for Mm -hmm. content to be removed were actually ignored to said actually it doesn't really violate our terms of service at all so we don't want to do anything about it um and we also know from his public comments about our story that elon musk doesn't think that twitter's interaction with the government was great he wasn't Mm -hmm. he said it was terrible Mm -hmm. so um perhaps we can expect in a sort of forward-looking newsy way we could expect to see twitter do something about it perhaps Mm -hmm. or twitter to make a statement about what it might do in the future and that perhaps would give people who have free speech concerns about these units a bit more confidence about about what could happen next time around. So I've been quite concerned about how few journalists are exploring and investigating censorship across the world. Obviously, I mentioned the Twitter files journalists and, and Michael Schellenberger, who's one of those journalists, uh, has republished your, your your investigation on his American newsletter, Public, and he's been very vocal about it. But it's as I've mentioned already in this interview, I've been concerned by how little other uh, mainstream media uh, have not picked up on it. And so I wish you and your investigation team, uh, well, firstly, congratulations on breaking this in, important story. And, and um, I wish you all the best in continuing to pursue what I deem exceptionally important issues. And I look forward to following your writing. So Tony Diver, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me.